Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 20 is where we will begin reading. We'll move into chapter 21. This Sunday, if you don't already know, is Palm Sunday. And so I thought it would be good for us to spend some time meditating upon our King and what he did on that Sunday before he rose again from the dead. For we have no other king but Christ. Would you stand with me as I read Matthew 20, beginning in verse 29 through 21, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus 
from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from ear to heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation. That as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When was the last time you held a crying child? Now, if you are a mother, maybe you would say, this morning. Maybe if your kids have been out of the house for a while, maybe it's been some time. Have you ever held a crying child? Or maybe have you ever seen someone hold that child who, it's not their child and the child begins to cry? And then a smile comes across their face, a smile that's not exuding confidence, a smile that is with a little bit of panic and fear, not knowing what to do, a little bit awkward, as if to say, please get this child out of my arms. Get them back to their parents. A crying child is often trying to communicate something, to tell you something, and maybe that's the only way that the child can communicate for the first few years of their lives. And sometimes it's difficult to decipher what is it that they want, what is it that they need. Have they been fed? Does their diaper need to be changed? Are they too hot? Are they too cold? Or are they just being fussy for the sake of being fussy? With an inconsolable child, we might get to the point where we ask, what is it? What is it that you want? While the cries continue, while we want things to get better, it seems as if sometimes when you hold that crying child, each step makes it worse. I remember walking my eldest son around his room in the middle of the night while he cried, his very distinct cry in my ears, all the while praying, Lord, 
please let this child go to sleep. His cry is so distinct, I can still remember it to this day. Awan, awan, awan. He hasn't cried like that in a long time. Why? Because he's grown up. He has moved on from crying to communicate with us in other ways. Now if he's hungry, he just goes and raids the kitchen. And I wonder if there's any food left in her house. As parents or even as grandparents, we look forward to that stage when our child moves on from crying to talking. We no longer have to deal with the crying child. Those days are behind us, but what about for the Christian? What about for us who follow Jesus Christ? Are we those who want to get past crime, get past the crying child phase? Is it ever right for us to cry out? Is it ever right for us to raise our voice, to get the attention of God, to bring to Him all of our hearts, our thoughts, our fears, our longings, our problems? Or do we think we've grown up? We've moved on from that. I don't need to cry out anymore. In fact, crying out makes us feel a little bit awkward. It makes us feel a little bit apprehensive and unsure. Surely God does not want us to cry out to Him anymore, does He? And what will other people think if I cry out to the Lord? That person has got a lot of problems. They're a little crazy. They need to grow up. They need to get with the program. They need to know what is appropriate and what's inappropriate. They are weak. They are like little babies. That can be the attitude towards Christians from the world. The world would say to us, you know, Christians, you really just need to grow up. You really just need to get with the program It's time for you to to move on from all of those myths and all of those stories and all of those preposterous accounts that you find in that ancient, outdated, and irrelevant book. Isn't it time for your minds to be more scientific, more modern, more educated? The world will continue to accuse us of our infantile ways and our lack of understanding. We are fools according to the world standards. We will be those who will be seen as weak. We are those who will be accused of using our faith as a crutch. The world will attack us, saying to us, grow up. But we will not grow up in the way that the world wants us to grow up. But the Bible does encourage us to grow up into, in every way into Him who is our head, into Jesus Christ. The Bible does promote healthy, mature Christians as a good thing. Paul says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We are those who desire to be more like Christ, 
more Christ-dependent, more Christ-loving, and more Christ-glorifying in all things. How do we grow up? In one sense, we learn to grow up when we learn to cry out. Christians do not grow up by learning to grow out of crying out. Rather, we grow as we learn how to cry out and what to say as we cry out. Crying out is not a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of good things happening in the heart of a person. In fact, parents want to hear this crying out, don't they, when their children are first born? You're waiting for them to take that first breath and to cry out. Why? Because there is a sign of life that's there. And as we work our way through these events in the life of Christ, we see this thread is the thread that keeps these three events together. You have people who are crying out. They're crying out not with indistinct cries. They're crying out with purpose. They are crying out from longing in their hearts. They are crying out because they realize that they have to. It's right and good and necessary. They must cry out. It's the only way. And so they cry out. But what's even more necessary is that they cry out to a person. They cry out to someone. They are not doing this for the world. They are not doing this for their own reputation. They are not doing this to parade their spirituality for everyone else to see. They are crying out to Jesus. They are crying out in order to be seen by Him. They are crying out in order to be known by Him. And there is no one greater to be seen by or known by than Jesus. But do you want to be seen by Him? Do you want to be known by Him? Do you need to cry out to Him? It seems a little embarrassing, a little out of my comfort zone, a little awkward, a little childish, but it is the mark of a growing, maturing, strong Christian. And so what I'm calling for today is for a confessional crying out from us. What does this mean? Our crying out in our hearts is to be based on biblical truth. Our crying out is rooted in who God has revealed himself to be, who he tells us who we are, and what he has done to make atonement for us through his son. But better yet, let's add one more element. I'm calling for confessional, Christ-focused calling out. Not only do we see people crying out as a thread that runs through these accounts, but we also see a particular title. As these people call out to Jesus, they don't call him Jesus, they call him the Son of David. Why is that significant? It has its origins in a promise that the Lord has made to his people. The Lord makes promises. And the Lord keeps promises, and the Lord keeps all of his promises. This is what was promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what's being told to David? David, you're going to die. But there's going to be one who comes from you, an offspring from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. David, you wanted to build a house for me. You wanted to build a temple for me. You're not going to do that. But this son is going to be the true builder of the house. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You don't need then to look for anyone else. You don't need to look for another king. You don't need to go on a search. This king is fundamentally different than any other king that we've ever known. All other kings will die. All other kings will go away. All other kings, their kingdoms will come to an end. But not this king. Not this son of David. This son is a son who is better than David, a son who is better than Solomon even. This is the long-awaited Messiah. The king the Jews had been longing for. The one who would vindicate them. The one who would make everything right. The one who would overthrow their adversaries. Who would bring them back to prominence. Who would raise them up out of the dust to glory again. And Israel was singing, Come thou long-expected Jesus. But what song was Jesus singing? I'm not the Messiah you expected. Not the king that you think I am. I'm better. <laughs> I'm a better king than what you had expected, than what you longed for. If we are to cry out to Jesus, to this son of David, what are we crying out for him to do? What do we expect him to do? What should he do? What has he promised that he will do? And do our expectations line up with who he is and with what he has done? Three truths I want us to work us through this morning as we look at these events in the book of Matthew. The first truth there, number one, Jesus is the son of David who restores us by his mercy. Jesus is the son of David who restores us by his mercy. Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem. He's about to begin what would be the final week before his death. He had set his face like flint. He's determined with nothing in his way, with nothing stopping him, he's about to make the 16-mile uh, trek from the town of Jericho up into the Judean hills to the city of Jerusalem. He is marching straight into certain death. And he knew it. With much that might preoccupy his mind, with many reasons to be weighed down and distraught, he exited the town of Jericho. Behind him, a crowd that followed him. And Matthew says, Behold. Do you see that there in verse 30? And behold. Matthew wants us to sit up, to take notice 
of what's going on. Don't miss this. What are we to behold? Two blind men sitting by the roadside. That's it? That's what we're to behold? Matthew, you want us to marvel at two blind men? Most likely, two blind beggars sitting by the roadside. Who knows how long they had been there? Who knows how many people had passed them by? Who knows how many people were even blind to their presence? There was nothing that anybody could really do for them. Throw them some money for food, give them some food perhaps. While these men did not have eyes that worked, they had ears that did. Do you see what it says there? And when they heard that Jesus was passing by. They heard Jesus passing by, and in that moment, perhaps only knowing which way to call out because of the commotion of the crowd, the two blind men cry out with one voice, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Notice first they recognize him as the Lord. Earthly lords are unapproachable. They're above the peasants. They would not associate with the lowly, but not this Lord. They called out to him as Lord because he was a different Lord. He was no earthly Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. But they also call him the son of David. They saw him as the Messiah, the root of David, the one from David's line who would sit upon the Davidic throne, the one whose kingdom would be established forever and whose rule would know no end. The Messiah who would make all things right. He was the promised king that they had been waiting for. It's right here in their understanding of who Jesus was that even though they were physically blind, their spiritual sight was impeccable. They saw who Jesus was while his physical features were indistinguishable and only veiled in darkness because of their unworking eyes. Their spiritual sight had amazing clarity to see the glory of their long-awaited Messiah. If anyone could do anything for them, it was him. But their crying out did not come without obstacles. The crowd rebuked the men and tried to silence them. Be quiet. Don't bother Jesus. Stop crying out to him. You look like fools. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Who are you to think that you can cry out to Jesus? You are the low, lowest of the low. You have nothing. You are nothing. Stop talking. Jesus doesn't have any regard for you. But the more the crowd tried to stop them, the more they persisted. They cried out all the more. With more frequency and with more volume, they said, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Why is it that they would not be stopped? Why did the rebuke of the crowd fail? Why would they disobey the crowd and cry out all the more? It was because they recognized their desperate 
and miserable condition. They were in misery and their only hope, the only way out was Jesus. They were not okay with being blind. They were unwilling to accept their miserable condition as the end. They wanted to see. They wanted to be removed from their darkened state. They wanted to see the sun. They wanted their world flooded with light. How were they going to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? By the king of the kingdom and specifically by the king's mercy. Have mercy on us, was their cry over and over. Mercy, mercy, Messiah, son of David, promised one of God. We know you to be the merciful king. Extend your mercy our way. Do not leave us in this misery. Satisfy our souls with your abundant mercy. This is to be everyone's cry. It's a cry based on knowing who the king is and knowing who we are and what we rightly deserve. Jesus didn't come saying, give them what they deserve. They've brought this upon themselves. The very nature of mercy is not giving someone what they rightly deserve or have earned. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we have earned. Please, Jesus, if there be any way, don't give us what we deserve. It's the same cry of the tax collector in Luke 18 where we read, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. Have you made this cry? Have you cried out to Jesus for mercy? It's not an optional cry. We need the mercy of Jesus, for without it, we are utterly and completely lost. Have you known the misery? Have you been so convicted of your sinful state that you came to realize the only way out was to cast yourself upon the goodness and loving kindness and the mercy of our God and Savior? Titus 3 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And what did Jesus do? He stopped and He asked the men, What do you want me to do for you? They requested to have their eyes opened. And then what? Jesus demonstrated his power. He didn't use his power to save himself. Rather, the son of David used his power mercifully and compassionately upon the two blind men to open their eyes. Jesus was so moved with pity and compassion for these two men who recognized their miserable state that he could not leave them that way. 
This is the Messiah, the Messiah has come. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Do you have your eyes opened? Have you called out to Jesus for mercy? And what's difficult in this world is that our adversary would like to offer to us that he can make us see. It happened at the very beginning. What did the serpent say to Eve? God knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. The serpent offered sight to Eve. But what was the result? Blindness. Even when Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, Jesus comes up against the Jewish authorities says to them, you think that you see, but you say you see, but you still remain in your sin. The only one who can open our eyes is Christ. And he still does this. He restores us by his mercy. And maybe you would wonder, would Jesus have mercy on me again? Would he come to me in his compassion and in his pity again? Micah 7 verse 19 he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Maybe you're here this morning and you said, I've called out for mercy, I've called out for compassion to Jesus, but I don't know if I can call out again. I don't know if he will be compassionate again. Yes, my friend, Jesus will be compassionate again. Yes, he will have pity on you again. Yes, he will give you his mercy. He will restore you. He will make you whole. We sing this song sometimes, my sins were many, more than I could count, higher than I could climb, deeper than I could ever want to go, vile, disgusting, wretched, poor. Yes, my sins were many, but Jesus took my sin upon himself. Jesus did not count the sum of all my sin. He took my sin, he threw them into the depths of the sea without bottom or shore, they can be and will never be recovered. 
They will not wash up ashore someday once again to haunt me. Yes, my sins, they were many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, stronger than darkness, new every morn. My sins were many, but his mercy is more. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, was blind. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me was blind, but now I see. Number two. Jesus is the son of David who rescues us in his humility. Jesus is the son of David who rescues us in his humility. Jesus comes to this village of Bethphage just a mile or so off from Jerusalem, located on the Mount of Olives. Instructs two of his disciples to go get a donkey and her colt in the village before them. And he tells them to do this with precision and accuracy, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Go, here's what you will find. And that's exactly how they find it to be. It's a necessary reminder at the beginning of Passion Week Jesus is the sovereign Lord who is in control. He knows what is going to happen, and in fact, he has orchestrated it. Do you think all that is going to happen to Christ the week before he goes to the cross is just mere coincidence, just haphazard circumstances? Jesus is over all of it. He is the sovereign Lord of all. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, And here is this beautiful picture that's painted for us that all coincides with what the Old Testament tells us would happen with the arrival of the Messiah King. Jesus' actions are fulfilling what is told to us in Zechariah 9.9. This message is for the daughters of Zion, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the residents of the holy city, Whereas previously our attention was drawn to two blind men, now behold, your king is coming to you. But how is he coming to you? That is what you must understand. That is what you must see. Here is the picture of Jesus riding on a colt. There were two animals that Matthew draws our attention to here, a donkey and a colt. Often these would go together because the donkey being the mother with the colt as the young donkey would keep the young colt tame. Something knowing that his mother was by his side. And so Jesus sat on the colt, particularly there. Some might try to say, well, maybe it sounds like he sat on two of them. But at the end of verse 7, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That, that them is not referring to the donkey and the colt. That's referring to the cloaks. So he sat on their cloaks, on the colt, as he rode into the city. Donkeys were not prestigious animals. They were lowly animals. And so this is a picture of humility. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but he is the humble king. Even this word, humble, has this idea of afflicted. 
behind it. He is the humble king or he is the afflicted king. And as he enters into the city, we see that the crowds accept him and receive him and there is much fanfare The crowds are laying their cloaks on the ground as a sign of submission to him. They are waving palm branches in the air and laying them on the ground as a sign of nationalism and victory. And then what does the crowd do? They begin shouting out. They begin to cry out just as the two blind men had cried out a few verses before. So the crowd begins to cry out to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is this word that means, Lord, save us. They are crying out then for nothing less than salvation. And who are they depending upon to accomplish this salvation? The one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus as the Messiah King is the ultimate one who is to establish and bring to the people the salvation that they have been longing for. He is the ultimate expression of God's representative. He comes in the name of the Lord. He comes with all of the Lord's authority, with all of the Lord's power, with all of the Lord's right to rule and to reign. It's, if, it's as if as he is bearing the name of the Lord as he comes in to the holy city. And what are they crying out? What are these words? They have these words upon their lips that come directly from Psalm 118. And so they are singing this biblical song about Jesus. They're saying, he is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, what we've been waiting for. And they add then on the end of it, Hosanna in the highest. How great a salvation and deliverance they are requesting from their God and King. They are asking for nothing less than a divine deliverance. A salvation that comes from God himself and is ultimately accomplished by God himself. But what does this salvation, this rescuing of his people look like? Does not come with military might? Does not come with political prowess? Does not overthrow the Roman government or army? This is what the people would have liked. This is what they might have been expecting. The rescue accomplished by Christ was a redeeming rescue accomplished through his humility as he was crucified and died on a cross. We need a humble king who would be obedient to the point of death. This picture of a donkey not only gives us the image of humility, but it also gives us the image of peace. The people wanted peace, but they needed a far deeper peace than they realized. They needed peace with God. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he came to give peace to the people. A peace that was far better than any temporal, governmental, military peace. A peace that would endure 
for all eternity. And what I find fascinating in God's word is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, but one day he's going to ride on a different animal. He's going to ride on a white horse. And the one who is sitting on that horse is the one who is called faithful and true. His eyes are like flames of fire. His clothe, he's clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. He has a sharp sword coming from his mouth with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron and on his robe and thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In order for the rider on the white horse not to be a source of dread, you must first embrace the rider on the donkey and cry out, Hosanna, save us. And then we can look forward in victory to the end. Finally, number three, the third truth of this crying out that we should be saying to the Lord. Jesus is the son of David who redirects our praise to himself. Jesus is the son of David who redirects our praise to himself. Redirects our praise to himself. Jesus takes, or I'm sorry, Matthew takes us right from Jesus entering Jerusalem to the temple. If we were to read Matthew alone, we might think that Jesus made a beeline for the temple, but most likely this entering of the temple happens on the next day, on Monday morning. So we have this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, and then on Monday we have this cleansing of the temple. And we see that the authority of Jesus continues to extend. And so his authority extends over the inhabitants of Zion as he comes into Jerusalem. But now we see that Jesus' authority extends over the temple itself. The king has come into his holy temple. And he takes actions that would almost be unthinkable. Jesus comes into the temple, and what does he start to do? Starts to overthrow tables. He starts to turn over chairs. You ever have that picture of Jesus in your mind? Like, we like the mild and meek Jesus who doesn't really ruffle any feathers. He's safe. I mean, imagine Jesus walking in here and starting to turn over chairs and tables. What is going on? But that's what Jesus did. The people had set up a market in the temple. They set up a place of selling and buying animals that, that would be used in sacrifice in the temple. They had set up this market in the outermost court. This court was known as the court of the Gentiles. A place where Gentiles could come and could pray and worship the Lord. A place where people from every tribe and tongue and nation could come. And here they were now, these people 
These Jews were desecrating it by selling animals for sacrifice, by changing people's money into temple currency so that they could pay their temple tax. It very well could have been that through these practices, they were also cheating the people out of their money. Their business practices were not above board. They were taking advantage of the worshipers. This is very literally Jesus cleaning house. Why is he doing this? Well, it says it right here, doesn't it? He quotes Isaiah 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what the Lord, that's what Yahweh says. Yahweh says, this is my house, and my house is going to be called a house of prayer. But we can minimize prayer, can't we? We can marginalize prayer. They had come to this point and think, well, we really don't need all of this space for prayer, so maybe we could take part of it and use it for our own purposes and for our own practices. To how many, and even to how many Christians, are we willing to think it even in our heads, if not say it with our mouths, that prayer doesn't really do anything? And how many show that they don't believe that prayer does anything because they don't give themselves to it? But could it be that God uses the prayers of the saints as the means by which He accomplishes His will and His work in this world until it reaches its final goal? Our prayers then are used of by God. Prayer does more than we can ever think or imagine because it is heard by the Almighty God who does more than we could ever think or imagine. But what have the Jewish people done? They have made this not a place of prayer, not a place where you come and meet with God, not a place where you commune with God, but a place where robbers meet, a place where thieves meet, a place where terrorists meet. That's the literal idea here is that this is like a cave of terrorists hiding out. Which should have been a place where you meet with God, a place where you should have found your refuge in God, now has become a refuge for sinners, for people who are opposed to worshiping God. They're not promoting worship. They are promoting anti-worship. And with with such utter disregard for the Lord, there should be no guarantee that His presence would be with them. And so Jesus warns them. This is a place of worship. This is a place where you should be close to God, where you should meet with God. But they had turned it into something completely opposite. And then what happens? The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Amazing because these blind people and these lame people would not have any place to get 
near to God, wouldn't have any place to worship in the temple, to get close to God. And so what does Jesus do? He comes, they come to him, and he heals them, so now they have this access to God. So now that they can come to God, and what's more happens after that? When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So there it is again, this crying out. There are these children in the temple. And what are they doing? They are lifting up their voices in praise to Jesus Christ. They are saying the same things that the crowds were saying as he entered into Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes became angry. They were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these children are saying to you? Jesus, maybe you should act like the crowd outside of Jericho. Maybe you should rebuke them. Maybe you should silence them. Maybe you should get them to be quiet. But what does Jesus say? Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Think about it. These are Chief priests and scribes, have they ever read? Yes, they've read. They know the Old Testament. They know the Bible inside and out. But Jesus saying, have you never read, is an indictment upon them. Yes, they have read. Yes, they should have known. But what? They didn't know. What an indictment against these leaders that he would say to them, You should have a knowledge of the scriptures and so a knowledge of God and so know God, but you don't know the scriptures, you don't have a knowledge of God, and so what? You don't really know God. Is that dangerous? You can know God's word. You can have read it from cover to cover, but still not know God. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus says, this is exactly what should be happening. What does Jesus do here? He quotes Psalm 8. If you go back in your Bible, it's just a few pages here or a little ways back. Psalm 8 starts out this way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Jesus is saying, these children, these babies, they are rightly praising me because I am God. They are not blaspheming All praise now is to be directed to me. 
They are absolutely right in what they are doing. And what are these babies doing? Look at, look at Psalm 8. Why are these babies praising God? Because of the creation that God has made. It's as if the psalmist is meditating on creation. He's meditating on the majesticness of the Lord's name that has been seen in his creation over all of the earth and all of the glory that he sees in the heavens. And these little ones, these babies, these infants, they recognize it, they see it, and they cannot keep their mouths shut. They must praise God because of it. And now these children in the temple, they see Jesus. And there's an indictment on these Jewish leaders. These ones, these lowly ones, these children, these babies, these unsophisticated ones, these uneducated ones, these ones that you might not give the time of day to, these ones are getting it right. They see me for who I truly am, and they are rightly praising me. They are praising him because he is worthy of all praise. They are praising him because of the new creation that he brings. They are praising him because he is the true son of man. They are praising him because he is the one who is given dominion over all things and will bring all things underneath his feet, all enemies, all adversaries. And Jesus then in the temple is saying to these chief priests and these scribes, you are the adversary. You are the one who is trying to shut up the mouth of babes. But out of these mouths comes the truth of the gospel that points everybody to me as the Savior, as the King, as the one who has come to rule and to reign and to save, they are saying, I am worthy. They are saying, if you want to worship, worship right here. And that is why our praise must be redirected to our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why we continue to cry out, because he is ultimately worthy of all of our praise. Are we practicing confessional, Christ-focused, crying out? Have you cried out for his mercy? Have you cried out for his rescue and from saving and from, his, from salvation from your sin? Have you redirected your praise to him? May we grow in him as we cry out, and may we know this, as we cry out, he always, always, always attends to our cries. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And may the praise continue to pour out of our mouths and out of our hearts to you. May we never cease to cry out. 
may we know again that Christ's compassion will come upon us. Oh Lord, may we be people who see the need to cry out day after day after day. And that our Savior hears us. That our Savior knows us. And that our Savior will attend to us wherever we are. He is not far from us. He has not left us alone. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Spirit, have mercy upon us. O God, the Father in heaven, we beseech you, hear us. O God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, we beseech you, hear us. O God, the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, we beseech you, hear us. Be gracious unto us, spare us, good Lord. Be gracious unto us, help us, good Lord. Be gracious unto us, save us, good Lord, from our sin, from our errors, from all evil. Good Lord, deliver us. Lord, have mercy upon us. We pray. Amen.